0: Hi, welcome to this fresh teaching from Foundation Church Belfast. My name is David, I'm the pastor of Foundation Church and today we have come to the last in our series called Restoration. We've been looking together over the last 10 weeks uh, through uh, the book of Ezra, the Old Testament book of Ezra and we've been seeing God's uh, restoring power, his restoring plan uh, come to fruit. Uh, Don't forget the background is that uh, God's people had been unfaithful to him over many generations and he had um, delivered them into the hands of one of the great enemies, the, the Babylonians. And they've been taken away for a generation, uh, captives in a foreign land. They were powerless. And yet God, uh, because of his, his, his love, his promises, because of who he is, the kind of God he is, he said, I'm not done with you yet. My promises to you and your fathers uh, are still in existence. They're still in play. And so we've seen uh, throughout this series how God took uh, the exiles from Babylon and took them back to the promised land. Uh, He he encouraged them, he uh, stirred them, he equipped them, he empowered them with his spirit, he raised up leaders. And so we saw uh, back they went and they went to work on the the temple. Uh, They rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed uh, a generation earlier by the Babylonians and we've seen scenes of joy and jubilation as as worship to yahweh has has god of israel has restarted again and they had constructed the temple uh, the sacrificial system was up and running the priestly system everything was looking great and so what i want to end with uh, today are three um, outstanding values that we see in the restoration community three outstanding values Um, The first is meaningful marriage. The second is that they are radically repentant. And the third is living lordship. Three outstanding values of the restoration community. First thing we're going to look at is meaningful marriage. And and we've seen already last week uh, this big problem uh, that threatened to overturn all the good things that had happened um, since the restoration plan had had come about. Uh, We saw last week... Um, after Ezra had returned with a second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem, he heard through the grapevine um, that some, some leaders, some priests, some Levites, and, and you know, various families within uh, the first wave had started to intermarry with the surrounding nations. They said they had not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. And we saw last week how abominations is is the the old sort of Bible word for the practices of the pagan nations, the the, the people nations that do not know God, and so some within the Restoration community had been intermarrying, had taken you know wives from outside nations, and had started to um, practice their uh, their religion and their various um, ethics, and this was this was desperate. And we saw last week how Ezra. Um, fell on his face before God. He, he was grieved. He was appalled. He couldn't even utter a word of prayer or petition to God. He just tore his clothes. Um, he threw himself on the ground. He pulled out parts of his hair and beard. He was just totally uh, distressed. And before we go any further and, and examine what this is all about, we have to understand the, the background to all this. Um, because as we've been seeing all through the book of Ezra, the important thing about being the restoration community um, that God was was forming and, and, and well reforming uh, was that they existed to glorify God. Um, they existed to do that through through obedient worship and through living uh, holy lives and setting up a, a just um, society, as written through the law books, through, through the law of Moses. That was their calling. They were to be holy. They were to be set apart. They were to be different from the other nations, entirely different. And, you know, uh, other writers in the Bible say you're to be light. You're to be light to the nations because you're reflecting the glory of God to the, the spiritual darkness of the nations around you. Um, and nations, other nations that don't know God, were to be attracted to him because of the way that you behave and, and, and the way that you, you exist in the world. And so we can see the problem with intermarriage. It sort of blurs the lines. Um, Israel start you know, adopting the practices of other nations. They look less like Israel and they look more like the other nations out there. And this is a problem. We saw this last week. The light that they were supposed to emit grows dim. Uh, the glory of God starts to dampen down. He's, he's less displayed. He's less wonderful. He's less glorious you know, in the eyes of the nations because Israel were intermarrying. And that's why Ezra, man after you know God's own heart, loves the law, loves God Himself. Uh, why he had this massive outpouring of grief, um, because as we saw last week, again, he saw that for all the external changes, the new temple, the worship practices, all that stuff, despite all that, the people's hearts were not fully. After God, despite all that God has done for them, they chose another path. They chose to love other things more than God, and that's why this issue of intermarriage, intermarriage happened. And so we saw last week it was left on an knife edge. We didn't know so it was God going to be merciful and allow them off the hook uh, and forgive them and pardon them, or was He going to be um, just and was He going to punish them and, and destroy them forever? That's where it was left, and so we we come in just now. And uh, how does God deal uh, and how does the community deal with with this issue of intermarriage? Well, it says uh, when we look at chapter 10, it's our last chapter. Have a look at it now if you haven't already. Uh, Chapter 10, it says that Ezra, uh, while he was praying and making confession, he was weeping, casting himself down. Uh, This is a very great assembly, a great gathering of men, women and children gathered to him from all Israel and they wept bitterly. So, the sin, uh, this issue, this problem uh, w- w- was um, modelled, if you like. Uh, the, the reaction was modelled by Ezra. But others uh, came along and owned that themselves. Uh, they said, we have broken faith. You know, we have married, uh, we the community have married foreign women. We, we have increased the guilt of Israel. They're recognising that God was not happy with our relationships. Uh, the, our, our marriages uh, are outside the boundaries that he has set up for his people. Our marriages are unlawful by God's standards. And as a as such, uh, the community was in a precarious position before God. You see, Ezra realized the importance of God honouring meaningful marriage within the restoration community. And he, he knew the problem of, of, of people choosing someone from outside the community of faith to be their spouse. And of course, we've been seeing this already. It's the same as it was, uh, you know, same as it is today. Uh, The rest, the current restoration community, the church of Jesus Christ is to be marked by meaningful, God-honoring, light-emitting marriages that point to the gospel by the way the husbands and wives uh, react and and, and, uh, interact with one another in the marriage relationship. The restoration community is to be a a community of gospel light. And the way that we do married life is to be no exception to that. We're to be different to the the surrounding nations, to people who do not have Christ, do not know Christ. It doesn't mean, by the way, that that, that our marriages are all therefore perfect. But it does mean that, that within the church of Jesus Christ, it does mean that, Marriage is a place where restoration occurs, where the gospel is is not only talked about, but it is concretely demonstrated in ordinary life. Just in case you're wondering, by the way, marriage is, is, is very much, as we're seeing here and, and throughout the Bible, marriage is very much a calling of God. It's a calling that God has for some people. But likewise, singleness is also a calling from God that He has for some people. And both marriage and singleness find should find healthy expression within the local church. One is not superior to the other. If you're married or if you're single, you're not inferior or superior to the other. Both find expression in the local church. The local church is all about a community of relationships that are so deep and so life-giving because they are founded on Jesus and, and filled with the Spirit that they radiate the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that applies whether married relationships or single, you know, within the local church. But focusing uh, specifically on marriage for a bit, there's a bit of specific teaching on marriage just here. This idea of of a a gospel-emitting, life-emitting marriage is not always our experience of marriage within the local church. That's what we want it to be. That's, that's the vision that, that God has for us, the importance of it, we get that, but it's not always the way we want it to be. We might want to live a, a meaningful gospel marriage, but we can't. There's very, various reasons why that might be true. Uh, perhaps you have a spouse who's not a believer in Jesus. You're a believer, but your spouse is not a believer in Jesus. Uh, maybe you came to faith um, after being married and therefore you're married to, you're, your spouse is not a believer. Uh, maybe you married someone who at the start you thought was a believer, but as your marriage has continued on and matured uh, and you see that person for who who they are, it's starting to become clear to you that they were never a believer at the, at the start. You thought they were, you hoped they were, but they're not. Maybe you married someone who you knew wasn't a believer but it didn't bother you and you went ahead and married them anyway. What do you do if this is the case? What do you do in light of this passage? Well, here's the question, right? Does does Ezra 10, we've read together, or you can read it yourself. uh, Does Ezra 10 provide a model in that situation when we're married to an unbelieving spouse? Are we to, to follow the actions through? Uh, Ezra 10 and as it goes on to show put away unbelieving wives and husbands are we to to divorce unbelieving wives and husbands is that the biblical teaching the model that Ezra has for us here and and that we're to adopt as the community on mission well let me say clearly no it's not no it's not because Ezra 10 is not the only teaching in the Bible on the subject of of marriage and what we do if we're married to an unbelieving spouse. In fact, um, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, one of the major writers of the New Testament Bible, uh, both of them teach that marriage is good. It is wonderful. They are, they are, they're affirming uh, the Old Testament view that marriage is a gift from God. It's a good thing. It's part of his plan uh, for many of his peoples. not for everyone. We've seen that already. But it's a good thing. And we see that in, in, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that God creates a man and woman and puts them together. Two shall become one flesh, it says. And Jesus and Paul affirm that. But as we've seen and we, we started to think last week, if, if you are a believer in Jesus and if your life has been radically changed by his grace, his, his love for you, uh, your understanding of what he's done for you, then it stands to reason. It stands to reason that you should find a spouse who likewise loves Jesus and has been radically changed by His grace. It stands to reason. This is this is some practical application, I suppose. Um, stands to reason. If you're looking uh, for someone to marry, and you love Jesus and you've been radically changed by His grace, then 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 find someone with whom you can live out and enjoy. The benefits of the gospel together in the unique setting of marriage. That you can teach and show and demonstrate the gospel to one another through your marriage. And and you know, if you have go on and have children, uh, teaching and demonstrating and modeling the gospel to them too. You need to find someone who's gonna who's gonna agree with you and, and, and be of one mind on those things. Preferably, and I think this is this is this is my advice to you, someone who you can go to the same church. You know, um, going to go the same local church together, uh, that you can both be uh, happily part of what's going on and, and, and a deep member of the c- uh, community on mission, just stands to reason. Being part of the same local church community where you can live out the, the, the gospel in your marriage in the context of others who are also doing the same. Uh, spending your money, spending your time, doing ministry together, that's what a gospel centered marriage should look like. coming back to this idea, what, what do we do if we are married to an un- unbeliever somehow or other? Um, and, and Paul addresses this very thing in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, he writes, um, verse 12, if anyone has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to, to st- stay with him, to live with them, then he should not divorce her. If any uh, woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, he says, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Mm. There's some teaching from Paul. What is he saying? Uh, Paul, um, in, in this letter, 1 Corinthians 7, he's addressing what to do if you're married to an unbeliever. Um, and, and the context for what he's saying is he, he most likely is assuming um, the members of the church, uh, of Corinth that he's writing to, 1 Corinthians 7, um, have come to faith in Jesus after being married. So they've been married and then they, they've subsequently heard the gospel, they've, they've, they've trusted Jesus, um, they've received him by faith, and then they're in this position where they're married to someone who doesn't share the same views as they do. What do you do, he says. Um, and, and, and the point he's making in these verses is that an unbelieving spouse is in a prime position, therefore, to hear and see the gospel. Prime position, grandstand position. If he or she finds themselves married to, to you, and uh, you're a believer in Jesus and they're not, Paul is saying they're in a wonderful position, Uh, to receive and hear and see the gospel he goes on to say how will you know if you're a wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you'll save your wife he's saying here that there is enormous potential if you find yourself married to an unbeliever enormous potential in that relationship not that you're going to get an overnight change um, but if someone is married to you um, and you love Jesus and and they will have this grandstand position uh, by seeing and hearing the gospel over time, over many years, most likely. Uh, Not always is guaranteed that person, your spouse, will come to faith, but there's great potential uh, in that relationship for someone to turn to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. Of course, the same rule, I think, applies to you you if you, let's face it, if you married someone intentionally knowing that they were not a believer in Jesus, but you did it anyway. Um, Even if in the past you made a bad decision, um, that that text still applies to you. You've come to faith in Jesus and your life, your your love for Jesus, your passion for him and for for the local church um, will have a massively positive impact on the person that you've married. Look folks, I'm not pretending this is easy. It's not an easy teaching. There are so many things that we could talk about. We could put a whole sermon together, a whole book together, uh, dealing with this alone. Marriages, of course, let's, let's face it, can be very messy, no matter who you are and, and who you've married and, and the story about how that all came together. Marriages are complicated because you've got two broken, messed up, fallen, sinful people coming together. Um, of course, there's going to be fireworks at times. We, we all make unwise choices from time to time and we have to deal with the consequences you know, we make decisions based on our sin or based on blindness or based on, based on wishful thinking. But the thing, with all that in place, the thing we have to know is that the church, and it's particularly in our context, Foundation Church, is a community of hope. It's a community of restoration because of the gospel of Jesus. There's no condemnation upon you at Foundation Church because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are all fallen and sinful. We all make wrong choices. We all mess it up from time to time. But because of the gospel, we are not defined by our sins and our failures. Instead, we are defined by Christ and his righteousness. And we receive the the favour and the the grace of God and and, a spirit part of that we are all in the restoration process that god has us on that's why the the restoration community the local church is marked by meaningful marriage don't think by the way that you're alone if you're struggling in your marriage or you've had bad experiences in the past don't think that you're alone we are we are here together on mission but we're here together as a community to love one another in the name of jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit to to help us uh, do what is humanly impossible left to our own devices. And so we all have a role, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're newlyweds, whether we're engaged, whether we're widowed, uh, whether we're celebrating our diamond anniversary. We all have a role. Why is that? Because meaningful marriages, as part of the restoration community, display the glory of God. And it's part of what it is to belong to the restoration community is to see outstanding quality number one, meaningful marriage. We've just seen how uh, the first outstanding value of the restoration community is meaningful marriage. But this is not a sermon primarily on or about marriage. Ezra 10 is not primarily on or about Marriage. We saw last week how marriage was like the the, intermarriage between uh, Israel and the surrounding nations was the sin on the surface, Uh, but rather like an onion, uh, you peel back the first layer, and under that is another sin. There's a deeper issue, a more core issue. And so, the issue here primarily uh, is not just the intermarriage that's the surface sin. The issue here is that the heart of the people of Israel. Was going after something else other than God in their heart of hearts they loved something more than they loved God and his ways and so when they heard God's law when they knew God's commandments his expectations for how they should live and who they should marry they heard that not as a life-giving Boundary in order for them to flourish and express the glory of God. They heard that as a restriction. They heard that as God saying, I don't want you to have any joy or any fun. You cannot do. They heard that as a negative. They mistook the word of God and thought that was oppressive and harsh. They thought they knew best. They, they had something that they loved more than God. And so they were not willing to follow him in obedience when it come to who they marry. came to who they marry. But when they realized their sin, And if they saw the reaction of Ezra to this news of intermarriage, they started to turn. They started to own his reaction. Through through Ezra's reaction and the stirring of the Holy Spirit, it says uh, this great assembly of men and women and children came and wept and wept bitterly. They started to realize the problem that was occurring within the restoration community. Uh, and, and in verses two and three, they say the community say, even now, perhaps even now there is hope for Israel in spite of our sin. And so they made a covenant before God. they They decided to repent, to turn away from their practices and and, and turn towards God instead. It says in verse three we'll we'll put away our wives and children, those those wives and the families that came from them through their intermarriage, we will put them away. We will swear, it says in verse 5, we'll make an oath, we will promise ourselves, we will bind ourselves before the God of Israel to do this, to to, to see it through faithfully. And so it says they assembled in in Jerusalem. Great gathering, we're not entirely sure how many, but it says uh, the heads of of, of the houses, the men of Judah and Benjamin, uh, gathered together in Jerusalem. We're talking tens of thousands of people here. Think... um, Uh, If you've ever been to watch Ulster Rugby, for example, Ravenhill, Kingspan Stadium, capacity is 18,000. Windsor Park, similar, 18,500. If you've ever been to the Aviva Stadium in Dublin uh, to watch Ireland play rugby, it's about 51,000. Something around, around between those two. Thousands and thousands of people together mourning, grieving, and as one community deciding to turn things around, turn things back to God. Uh, this, it turns out, was a bigger task than Ezra was expecting. He thought he could uh, pull this, this, this off in, in a few days. Um, so, as, as the story goes on, alternative arrangements were made in order for judgment to be made in, in various cities across the province. And uh, effect, effectively, it took many weeks to complete. Um, they had to go through the list of families and find out who was guilty of intermarriage, um, beginning with the priests, and then the Levites, and then uh, the other members of the community. Everybody had to appear before the, 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 the Israel, um, Israelite authorities and um, give account for their families and their marriages. And when you read through, starting at verse 18 uh, to the end of the chapter, it gives a list of all those who are found guilty of intermarriage. And give or take, there's about 110 names of, of men who had taken wives from... surrounding nations who were guilty of intermarriage and it says in verse 44 some had even born children so this is a a messy situation we're talking about incredibly messy um and as part of this as part of this radical repentance families were split up women and children were sent away presumably back to their own lands where they they came from and this is totally heartbreaking let's not let's not paper over this This is heartbreaking it seems incredibly cold doesn't it And, and callous Um, Perhaps we we read this and you think, my goodness, these people are clearly zealous for God and his law, but isn't this a bit over the top? I mean, I feel uncomfortable when I'm saying these things and I'm reading these things, and maybe you feel similar. Surely we think to ourselves there was another way. Couldn't God have forgiven them? Couldn't they have turned away and, and, and yet sort of converted everybody to the ways of God in Israel or something? Would that not have been an option? Even one modern Bible commentator, a scholar, um, commentating on this chapter in Ezra chapter ten, um, sought to reject uh, what happened here, um, and he, he he writes that uh, Ezra got it wrong. The community here got it wrong. They screwed up. That's how modern people can deal with this. They say, "Oh well, you know, this is misplaced zeal. This is this is wrong. They thought they were doing the right thing, but they were wrong." But that certainly flies in the face of everything we've learned about Ezra so far uh, in this text. Um, It's never portrayed in this this part of the Bible as something that was a mistake. Um, If anything, Ezra is portrayed as a man who is radically committed to God, who loves him with all his heart and knows the law uh, impeccably. Um, On the contrary, Ezra chapter 10 here shows the mess of our sin and it shows the sad consequences of our going against god and his plans for our life but also it demonstrates the radical attitudes that we're to have towards sin so the second outstanding value of the restoration community is radical repentance let's do a bit of math for a second We're talking about 110 men here out of a population of, let's say, 40,000, give or take 10,000. That's less than 1%. So we can think to ourselves, well, less than 1% of marriages and families within the restoration community have intermarried. Less than 1%. Surely there's another way. What is the problem? Isn't this all a bit, we say to ourselves, isn't this all a bit over the top? Less than 1%. Isn't this a bit of fuss about not very much? Didn't they have bigger problems to, to face, to deal with? I mean, look at all the good things going on, Ezra. Everything that's happened. Why are you getting so upset about such a small thing in the community? Why break up families and send children away? This is overly harsh, Ezra. Not everything is black and white, Ezra. When you read the law, you know, just allow some space for, for, for some wiggle room here. All this mourning and fasting you've been doing and pulling out your hair, isn't this a bit over the top? Less than 1%. The problem is, though, that Ezra, as we're seeing, has realised how sinful and and unfaithful the people have been, not just at this stage, but throughout their massive and long history. He knows, and we've seen this last week in chapter 9, How their unfaithfulness, generation after generation, led to their final abandonment, uh, temporary, uh, by God, uh, leaving them over to the captivity in Babylon. That's how they got to that place in the the first place. And and Ezra realized that if it wasn't for the the mercy of God, that they, they would easily go back to something like that or even worse. And Ezra, he knows the figures. These are small numbers. It has to be accepted. But it's like yeast in dough. It doesn't require much yeast to make the dough rice. It has a massive effect. And just like that, this, this, this uh, sinful uh, disobedience, even though it's small numbers, can percolate through the entire restoration community, exerting its influence, growing, uh, drawing more people in. And, and Ezra knew... The God and his justice against sin could wipe them out at any minute. And and we could just dismiss this and say this is a one-off zealot in the Old Testament who was just a bit sniffy and a bit black and white on all of this. But we don't get off of this so easily. We'd like to, but we don't. In fact, we see this same attitude, this exact same attitude affirmed by Jesus himself. And Jesus says, in effect, the restoration community must be marked by radical repentance. Where do we get that from? Well, Jesus teaches, and we see this recorded in Matthew 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He goes on to say, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one part of your body than the whole body goes to hell. You can see how seriously Jesus takes the issue of sin. And he, of all people, will realise the devastating impact of sin when he took our sin upon himself and suffered the wrath of the Father in our place. The anger, the just anger of God in our place. Jesus was not blinded to sin like we are. He knew the implications of sin and the the, the sinfulness of the human heart. And just like Ezra, he teaches that the restoration community must be radically repentant. They are to stop at nothing to avoid sin. They're to cut it off. They're to pluck it out. Even if it costs temporarily pain for yourself, it is better to do that, he says than leave things unchecked and go on a path to destruction that's what jesus teaches that's what ezra teaches there's no sense in all this with ezra or with jesus that one sin is okay it's just one sin it's just one percent of the community it's all right 99 percent are fine ezra knows the percentages he's, he's not unaware of the numbers he did maths at gcse and probably did quite well There's nothing stopping him here from softening his approach, from backing down. Even though we're talking fairly small numbers, he is not uh, content to just sit and see what happens. And it's the same too with Jesus and his approach to sin within the restoration community. It's inconceivable, let's face it, that Jesus would just wink at sin, that he would permit certain sins, that he would affirm certain sins, that he would just try and smooth things over. Let's concentrate on the biggies. Look at how radical the teaching of Jesus is here in Matthew 5. If your right hand causes you to sin, don't pretend it's not there. Deal with it radically. And if it means cutting it off, metaphorically, by the way, then do it. It's better for your body in the long run. For us in the restoration community of the local church, we, we, we cannot be soft on sin, on fallenness, and on their consequences among us. We can't allow ourselves to get comfortable, to ignore the elephant in the room, to minimize it, to excuse it, to to hope it goes away. If Jesus and Ezra are to be believed, then our sin and our sinful decisions and their consequences, they won't disappear. In fact, the natural history of sin is that it will continue to grow. It It will multiply, it will grow subtly, it will grow quietly. It will start spreading into other parts of the body, just like an aggressive form of cancer. It will affect one part of the body after another, after another. That's why we must be so radical in our, we're radical in our approach to treating cancer, actual cancer. We must be more radical in our approach to treating the, the, the cancer of sin among the restoration community because of the, da- the absolute damage that it will do. Just to be clear, just to be clear, this does not mean, a radical repentance it does not mean that we as a church or we as people are to be unloving. It's not an excuse to be hurtful or aggressive or harsh with one another. Radical repentance is a posture, is a lifestyle, it is something that we all do all the time out of our love for Jesus and our acknowledgement that we need his grace daily. We do this together. So it doesn't mean we we become nasty, nitpicky people because we all need grace. We all need to turn from our sin and turn towards Jesus, not just once, not just at the start of our Christian life, but over and over again on a daily basis. But it does mean, it does mean that we need firmness. It does mean that we need boldness. It does mean that we need to develop a a thickness and a resilience in our relationship that allows us to have, as required, difficult conversations, awkward conversations with one another to help each other see sin in our lives, perhaps where we have blind spots. The rest of the community can see it, but perhaps the individual can't, or maybe they've shut themselves off or they don't want to see it. We help each other because we are all recipients of God's grace. But as a result, we must be radically committed to repentance. Jesus demonstrated perfect love. And yet that did not stop him from directly speaking, and at times harshly, clearly, when sin was involved. He called out sin in leadership among people, among the hierarchy of society, and he got killed for doing it. It is not easy, but as we'll see, there is grace available and it's worth it. Well, the third and final outstanding value of the restoration community is living lordship. Living lordship. You know, the story of Ezra finishes abruptly after chapter 10. We don't know what happens, Um, We just know that people followed through. We don't really know what Ezra said or what God did directly. Ezra makes an appearance in the next book of the Bible called Nehemiah. He makes an appearance. Uh, Nehemiah um, leads the third wave of captives back from Babylon to Jerusalem. But we don't know really how it all transpired. You see, these, these Old Testament stories are not simply here to inform us and and to, to, to give us an interesting historic study of the Old Testament people of God. They're there for our instruction. They're there so that we learn lessons. The Holy Spirit, through these Old Testament peoples, says to us, learn from them. Learn from their successes. Learn from their stories of faith. But also learn from their mistakes and their failures don't do what they did in error don't follow in their footsteps of unfaithfulness stay faithful to god live under the lordship of his king jesus you see as 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 modern people in the modern restoration community which is the local church we're not so dissimilar from those in the ancient restoration community that we see here in in ezra yes we're in a different very different history very different context very different Geography, but despite all those differences, we are asking the same root question that we see asked all throughout Ezra, and that is this, is our heart fully given over to God and his purposes? Do we fully and completely want God, or do we only partially want him when it suits us? And we've seen the problem here. It's very easy for the restoration community from us as well to concentrate on all the external forms of, of worship and gathering and particularly in this lockdown time when we have missed that gathering and we're, we're gearing up to, to meet again and, and how might that look and how can we invite more people. That's great. Thank God for all of those things. And we're so looking forward to, to getting back to Sunday gatherings again. But the the problem is, and as we've seen here, we can concentrate far too much on the external things and yet our hearts are not going after God completely or totally or even at all. As Ezra found out to his great sorrow, external forms are possible without internal heart change. Put in other ways, are we, as a restoration community in the local church, are we living the lordship, of Jesus, Are we living under his lordship, his reign, or are we just using him for our own purposes to get some benefit or other? You know, Jesus makes huge claims over our lives and over our community as believers in Jesus. You know, in this pivotal moment in his earthly ministry, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? They've been with him for, for several years now, the disciples. They've been learning from him, uh, interacting with him, developing their friendship with him, and, and the knowledge of him, first-hand knowledge of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. They've seen him perform miracles. They've heard his teaching. And so he was testing them to see how much they really understood, how much functionally had they absorbed. Who do people say I am? And Peter said, well, I believe you are the Christ Christ. That is the Messiah, the Chosen One. Jesus said, you're right, I am. And then he went on to say that the Son of Man, that is Jesus, I myself must be rejected, I must be killed, and on the third day I must rise again. And Peter rebuked Jesus, it says. No, 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 he said, that's not what the Christ, the Messiah, should be doing. You've got it wrong, Jesus. That's, that's a wrong interpretation of scripture. And Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. He said to Peter, You've got your heart, your mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. He's saying, You want me, Peter, to behave in your way, to fit your agenda, to do your bidding? No. That's wrong. I am the Lord. And Jesus goes on, Mark 8, you can read this for yourself, Mark 8, 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus teaches here, among other places, that his followers, his people, the church, must put him first above They must prefer him above everything else in life. They must deny themselves, he says. They must uh, that is, give up their rights uh, and submit to Jesus' lordship over their lives. Uh, His claim on how they should live is to be foremost in their life, in their beliefs, in their words, in their ethics, in their relationships. That's why Jesus describes all this as taking up your cross, because it's not a comfortable thing following Jesus. It's a wonderful thing, but it's not a comfortable thing. It's a taking up of the cross. It can be painful like a cross. It can cause you hurt. It will cause loss or damage in some areas even. It involves relegating our comforts, our choices, our way of life to his will for our lives, his uh, glory, his purposes. Sometimes Jesus purposes and our own for ourselves coalesce and that's great but a lot of the time particularly when we're just starting out on our relationship with Jesus a lot of the time Jesus way for us and our way for ourselves when left to our own devices are radically different hence the cross something's got to give and Jesus said if you want to really follow after me and become one of my disciples then you need to take up your cross. It's going to cost you to be a true believer and follower of Jesus. Living Lordship. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to pick up the cross? It sounds terrible. It sounds painful. And indeed it is. And in some churches, some Christians, miss this whole part out when they talk about Jesus. And, and, and you can understand why. Because it's a great way to empty the pews. It's a great way to, to, to reduce the number of people who keep watching the videos and keep hitting like on Facebook. They will teach the God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And that's what Jesus has given himself to your, your purposes, your health, your wealth, your flourishing. But there's no mention of taking up your cross and dying to yourself. But that's exactly what Jesus did for you in the gospel. He gave himself on the cross in the fullest sense of that term so that you could be freed from your sin and, and your separation from God can be dealt with. You can't deal with that on your on your own. Jesus dealt with it in your place. He, as it says, drunk the, the cup of God's angry punishment, his wrath, All the way to the bottom. He paid the price for your freedom. Do you see what that does? If you you look at the cross and realise it's an empty cross. And and you see the fact that the grave is empty. And you understand that, that this happened for you. Then you will gladly choose to follow Christ. Then you will gladly receive his living lordship. And you'll not do that out of a sense of guilt in order to somehow pay God back for what he's done for you because you can never do that. And you don't, do, you don't follow Jesus uh, because of a sense of self-righteousness or somehow you're earning his love because you can't. Jesus loves you. The Father loves you. But you, you, you accept and live under the, the lordship of Jesus when you realize that Christ did all this for you. And that you are a recipient of his amazing grace and his mercy and his pardon and his forgiveness. He calls you a child of God. And when you understand that, when you, when you, when you genuinely hear the words and, and take them into the, to the center of your being through faith in Jesus, and you think, my goodness, he's done this for me. and I don't deserve any of it. Then you will humbly gladly give your life to jesus to his living lordship you'll you you you'll, you'll surrender your life out of thanks for him you will joyfully serve him you will live for him and and, and, and prioritize him you will gladly accept his living lordship over you i wonder is there a, an area of your life right now that you are doing battle with but an area that you know you, you haven't given over to the living lordship of Jesus. John Owen, way back centuries ago, wrote, be killing sin before it kills you. Is there is there a sin pattern in your life or a corner of your character that you've been either ignoring or, or relegating, trying to forget about? then give yourself to Christ. Trust him with your life. Feast yourself on the gospel of Jesus. Receive his Holy Spirit to empower you and equip you to change, to be more like Jesus as he works the gospel deeper into your life. You see, the deeper that you focus on the empty cross and the empty grave, the more you will be motivated to give your entire life to the living lordship of Jesus. Can we pray together as we close out this series? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way that you take us from slavery and captivity under occupation from the enemy. And you take us and you show your love to us and you make your promises to us and you say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And you bring us to yourself, to relationship with you. You do that through Jesus, your own son. You gave him to come and live a perfect life and die a death in our place so that we can be forgiven and restored And blessed as we receive the benefits of Jesus by faith. You restore us. We thank you for the church. We thank you that it is the place of restoration on earth. And Father God, may we understand and receive the power that comes from knowing Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit that we might glorify you more in our relationships, whether it's our marriage relationships, our families, in our church, as we interact with colleagues at work, in our city, as citizens of this world. Lord, may we bring you glory because you have restored us and are restoring us to be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.